Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 133 and 134 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Bryce and I are going to talk about section 134 first. And the reason for that is because section 133 was intended from the beginning to be an appendix. It was intended to come at the end. So section 134 really by intention should come first, and then at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants, we get 133, which was intended to be the appendix. So first, let's jump into 134, which is a commentary on principles that govern government. Yeah. It was recorded on August 17th, 1835, at a conference that the church was holding in Kirtland, Ohio, and actually Joseph Smith and his counselor, Frederick G. Williams, were away on a mission. And so while they're away in in Michigan on a mission, these articles are approved. Joseph didn't even learn about the inclusion of these articles until he got back from his mission, and he didn't approve of either action, either one of these, but he chose to respect the vote of the conference. And so there were two articles included. One was on marriage, and then one was this section. Later, the article on marriage was dropped from the Doctrine and Covenants in the 1876 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And section 132, which contains the Lord's Law of Marriage, that was put in, in its place. So that's kind of the historical context of what happens there. So W.W. Phelps arose and read the article on marriage in the conference in 1835. And then after that, Oliver Cowdery arose and read the article on the laws and governments that constitute this section. What I love about section 134 is that it paints the role of government as maintaining a balance. Now, sometimes government gets too far on one side, and it needs to be readjusted. Other times, government gets too far on the other side, and it needs to be adjusted. So I love that the council gave the purpose of government, and I think we can apply this to leadership, or even in the home, parenting, or any type of governing body. The purpose is to secure to each individual the free exercise of conscience, the right and control of property and the protection of life. That's a pretty decent definition of why governments exist and what their purpose is. But I love that it portrays that governments need to maintain a balance. It's not all about individual rights. It's a balance between rights and what we need to do to be responsible citizens. Sometimes I give up a right because it's the right thing to do as a responsible citizen. So I love the balance. For example, look at the very end of verse 4. The civil magistrate should restrain crime but never control conscience, should punish guilt but never suppress the freedom of the soul. And then at the end of verse 5, that it should secure the public interest, however holding sacred the freedom of conscience. So again, there's that balance, secure the public interest, what's best for all of us, versus the freedom of conscience, what's best for each of us. And I love that balance, and I love how the Lord says earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants that whatever cometh more or less than this is not right. It's when this is out of balance that we have problems. It can't be all about rights 
and it can't be all about responsibilities. So governments and leaders and parents and everyone in that type of role need to balance public interest with freedom of conscience. There also, Bryce, is some tension in this section historically. So, for example, Joseph Smith didn't want it in the scriptures, but he respected the vote of the conference, and so it was put in. And so I'm just going to read a great quote that is associated with verse 4. Verse 4 says, We believe that religion is an instituted of God and that men are amenable to him and to him only. Now, this is from Joseph Feely McConkie and Craig Osler. They write, This verse, meaning verse 4 of section 134, if this statement is taken at face value, that religion is instituted of God, there would have been no need for Joseph Smith and the Restoration. We could simply join the great chorus of voices that tell us that all roads in the ancient world led to Rome, so all faiths are capable of leading to salvation. Again, true religion and true worship were instituted by God in the beginning. And so I think you could take that word, we believe that religion, and then you could probably write there in your scriptures, true religion. If there is something true in religion or good in religion, then it it is harmonious. It is good, and it does promote the general good. And so I see a lot of good things in all religious traditions. But on one hand, I do see how this section could be controversial, not only to members of the church today, but even to members of the church in the Nauvoo period. For example, look at verse 6. We believe that every man should be honored in his station, rulers and magistrates as such. Now, clearly, there were times when Brigham Young did not like the rulers or Joseph Smith. But then you can see the other side of this. We are a global church, and we don't want the leaders of the countries to think that we are out to get them. And so there's this truth and contraries, this tension. On one hand, we believe in the kingdom of God and that God has laws that are just and true. But on the other hand, we live in this secular world where there are countries and laws that may not always be in agreement with the principles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we have to live in this world. And I think, Bryce, that's why we have verse 12. You can read some of this in the show notes, but why would Oliver Cowdery and W.W. Phelps feel so strongly about this? And how does verse 12 affect missionary work and the church? It's complicated, but... That's one of those verses that's kind of balancing these two ideas. And that's it. It always comes back to balance. And when we are out of balance, that's the problem. Sometimes we get out of balance on too much on one direction. Other times it's too much on the other. And so the key is to find that right balance. So Brigham had to find a balance between on this issue, we're going to push against the government. And then on another issue, on this issue, the right thing to do is to yield to the government. So... That's the balance. So now we're going to talk about section 133. And Bryce, you mentioned earlier that it's an appendix and how it beautifully is tying together everything, right? Right. So way back in Kirtland, so the church has been around for a year and a half. We've produced around 65-ish revelations. Many of them were given to a single individual. And the question was, should they publish the revelations? And they took that matter to the Lord And the Lord responded with section 1 and section 133. In other words, the Lord bookends the revelations and says, print them. So if you go back to section 1, you really need this week, if you're really going to get the most out of 133, you need to go back and reread section 1. Notice in verse 6, it's given as a preface. So that's why section 1 comes first. It's a preface. 
section 133 was intended to be the appendix and go at the end. So the Lord wanted to bookend the Doctrine and Covenants with this idea of who are we and what is our destiny. Every single one of us needs to have an identity based on, I am a child of God. I am the son of the king of this universe. I am heir to his throne, and I need to act appropriately for the position that I hold. That's my individual identity. But we have found our way into the Church of Jesus Christ of latter-day saints. We're not the last days. We're not the end. We're the ones that come before the end. We're the ones that have a specific message to give to the world. So I'm going to take you back to section one just briefly. Notice it begins with the word hearken. We use these listen words quite a bit in section one. Listen. We want the world to listen because we have a message. Section 1, verse 4, the voice of warning shall be unto all people. We have a message to the world. Now, the message is that the world is changing, and when the world changes into a terrestrial state, if you're not at least a terrestrial person, you can't change with it. We currently live on a telestial planet, capable of all sorts of telestial sins, Celestial people are here, terrestrial people are here, telestial people are here on this telestial planet. But our announcement to the world is that during the millennium, during the last section of earth, the last days, the earth will be a terrestrial state. The planet is going to change into a terrestrial world, which means anything that is telestial, has to either change or it has to go away. It cannot stand on a terrestrial planet. So our message to the world, verse 12 of section 1, prepare ye for that which is to come. For the Lord is nigh, and the anger of the Lord is kindled, and his sword is bathed in heaven, and it shall fall upon the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 14, the day cometh when they who will not hear the voice of the Lord neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets, at least at a terrestrial level. If you're going to be telestial, you will be cut off. And that's our message to the world. Now, Heavenly Father doesn't want to destroy them. He wants to save them. So notice section 1, verse 17, knowing the calamities, I, the Lord, knowing the calamities which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, I want to prevent those calamities from destroying my children. Knowing the calamities that are coming and wanting to save as many people as possible, I called upon my servant, Joseph Smith, Jr., In other words, the whole reason for the restoration is to save as many people as we possibly can. Now, turn to section 133, and you're going to find the sister verse to that. Section 1, verse 17, section 133, verse 57. For this cause, that men might be made partakers of the glories which were to be revealed, The Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel, his everlasting covenant. So those are our anchor statements. In section one, he's saying, knowing the calamities that are coming, I sent a prophet. 
in section 133, knowing the calamities that are coming for the cause, for this cause, that men might be made partakers of the glories which were to be revealed, the Lord sent forth the fullness of his gospel. Now, that's where you and I need to stand up and listen with intent ears. We are that army sent today to do those very things. We are the ones sent into the world to save as many of Heavenly Father's children as possible. Now, the Lord is going to wrap so many Old and New Testament ideas into section 133 that we are now fulfilling the prophecies made in the Old and the New Testament. I remind you that the night Moroni came, he quoted the Old and the New Testaments. And he began by saying, these are the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. We need to understand that. We need to understand what prophets, seers, and revelators in days past have been saying we in this dispensation would do. This is our identity. So have a personal identity that you are a child of God. But have a church identity that I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I know what that means. We are the ones sent prior to the cleansing, prior to the changing of the earth, prior to the destruction, to save as many people as we possibly can. So to jump into section 133, to set this up, let's talk about what happened to Israel. Those of us that are going to carry the baton across the finish line need to understand how the race began. But just briefly, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4? I want to just mention one specific Old Testament prophecy and how it relates to you and I today. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is going to depart. He's giving a final farewell. He's giving his final counsel to the house of Israel before they go into the promised land and he leaves them. And part of his counsel is this, starting in verse 25, he says, When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and you have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make graven image, or any other likeness unto it, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, and provoke him to anger. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you shall soon utterly perish from off the land wherein ye go unto Jordan to possess it. You won't prolong your days there. And why? This is me paraphrasing. It's because they turned away from the Lord and wanted to be like the world. And as soon as you turn away from God and want to be like the world, what will the Lord do? Look at verse 27. The Lord shall scatter you among the nations. Because that's exactly who you wanted to be like. Instead of being a peculiar people like Peter pleads us to be, If we as a people want to become like the world, then he's going to scatter us to the world. That's exactly the prophecy in the Old Testament. So that's what's happened. That is exactly what happened during the apostasy. As soon as Israel wanted to be like the world, they were scattered into the world among all the nations. Now continuing Deuteronomy 4, listen to the prophecy 
starting in verse 29, but if from thence thou, meaning house of Israel, Abraham's seed, thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul, when thou art in tribulation and all those things come upon thee, notice what I'm going to quote the Bible, and you're going to shake your heads and say, that's not in the Bible. Yes, it is in the Bible. Deuteronomy 4.30, even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, thou shalt be obedient unto his voice. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he swear unto them. That is the call to the Latter-day Saints. We are the ones that are going to go find the Israelites who are remembering God, who don't want to be like the world where they have been scattered. They want to remember the Lord, and we're going to bring them back to Zion. And when we do so, we will see the greatest miracles that this earth has ever seen. So that's the setting for section 133. The purpose of the restoration is to go out and gather Israel back home. So let's walk through section 133, and Mike and I are going to pull in the prophecies from the Old and the New Testament that the Lord is basically saying are going to be fulfilled in our day. Yeah. Let's go to section 133, verse 3. So the Lord's coming to his temple in verse 2, coming for judgment, and this is a prophecy that God will gather his people. And one of the stories of the Old Testament is that God would triumph. He would triumph over the foes, all the enemies. And Joseph Smith said that, you know, the greatest enemy is death. So God is going to conquer death. And so in verse three, it says, he shall make bear his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of their God. And then verse four is an encouragement to gather together, O people of my church. Verse five, go out from Babylon, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. And then verse six, to call your psalm assemblies and speak often to one another. And if you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know that a lot of times I talk about how the Israelites had this first Israelite temple tradition. And my take on this is this is exactly what's happening. So this entire section comes out of this image, and it really is quoting Isaiah 52, and not to be outdone, Moroni, when he does the appendix to the Book of Mormon, his 10th chapter is talking about these same ideas. Moroni is going to use the same images that we read in these first 20 verses or so, because to Moroni, he's trying to teach us that this is about Christ, but there's a subtext to the Book of Mormon, and the subtext is the temple, the temple resurrection coming in to God's presence and being made kings and queens to God. I mean, that's basically the main thing in Exodus 19, where God wants to make us priests unto the most high God. But I would add priests and kings if you overlay that with what we read in Revelation, where we're, we're to become priests and kings. So with that in your mind, go to Isaiah 52, because he's quoting Isaiah 52 in this section. Now, Isaiah 52 is a companion text to Isaiah 47. So this is the great exchange. 
And what I mean by that is the 47th chapter of Isaiah is where Babylon's on the throne and God commands Babylon to get off the throne and sit in the dust. And Israel has been in bondage and Israel is to come out of bondage, arise from the dust and sit on the throne. We're not going to do Isaiah 47 in this podcast, but what we are going to do is we're going to look at Isaiah 52 as a lens with which to read some of these things. So Isaiah 52 verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth thou shalt no more come unto thee, the uncircumcised and unclean. Shake thyself from the dust, arise, and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And then skip down to verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Now think about the temple. For those of you that have been to the temple, you have to read this through the lens of the temple because there's a whole new meaning to these verses. And for those of you who haven't, go back to reread the dedicatory prayer in section 109, and the Lord says that he will establish this people and place upon them his name in the temple. So we go into the temple to receive that name. So another one of these images, we've got this Isaiah image, but the last story in the Old Testament is that when the Jews were taken into Babylon, when Jerusalem was destroyed and Lehi goes to America, and a select group of Jews were taken into Babylon, Daniel being one of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are others. Eventually, Babylon was conquered, and the Jews were sent back to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild the temple. Now, do you see the parallel to our day? Coming out of the apostasy, like the destruction of Babylon, coming out of the apostasy, we have been sent to earth to rebuild Zion. And it starts with the temple. So they were returning from Babylon some of the stolen vessels that had been taken, and they were returning it to the temple. One of the most important things we as Latter-day Saints need to do is to bear the vessels of the temple back to the holy place and rebuild the temple. So the Lord is picking up that symbolism here in section 133. We've seen the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah. Now we've seen the build the temple and bring back those vessels to the temple. Yeah. There's a lot of images happening in this section, and Isaiah is drawing on these ideas. And so imagine in your mind as we read these verses that Israel is gathered, they're at the temple, the king and queen are being enthroned, and they represent the prototypical Adam and Eve, the king and queen of the world that have been ordained to be lords over the whole earth. And they would celebrate God's victory over death. They would celebrate his victory over chaos and the invitation for order and making and keeping covenants. Now, if you've been endowed, this probably is ringing a bell. And after reading Isaiah 52, verse 6, about knowing God's name, notice verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Verse 8, thy watchman shall lift up the voice and the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. When individuals are seeing eye to eye, they're in a circle. That's how you see eye to eye. Verse 9, break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. Parenthetically, Hugh Nibley talks about the early Christians would get in a circle and they would sing. They would sing the hymns of Zion. 
Verse 10, the Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. He's making his arm bare. If you go to verse 3 of section 133, he will make his arm bare, his holy arm, in the eyes of all the nations. Verse 4 of section 133, we're to gather together. Verse 10, let them cry forth among all people, awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. There's images in here about the stakes being strengthened and the tent being enlarged in verse 9. These images are swirling around in Isaiah, and they're also being discussed by Moroni. And so in this context, back to Isaiah 52, I know we're going around a lot, but if you look in Isaiah 52, it says this, Behold, this is verse 13, My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. So we're talking about a servant. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. I think that's a reference to the Savior. And so then in verse 15, it says, he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which has not been told them they shall see and that which they have not heard they shall consider. Now, Joseph Smith is going to take that word sprinkle. He's going to change it to gather in the Joseph Smith translation. And that's a good rendering that we're gathering the saints together. The Greeks, the Greek Jews, who in the third century translated the Hebrew text of Isaiah into Greek, changed that word sprinkle into thamazontai, which is the conjugated form of thamazo. That, that is a word in Greek that just means to be amazed or to be in wonder, like in a state of wonder. And so when you think about thamazo being full of wonder, you think about what we read in the Doctrine and Covenants about a marvelous work and a wonder that's about to come forth. My contention is verse 15 is all of those things. It's Joseph Smith with gathering. It's being full of wonder. And I'm going to play with that word for sprinkle in the Hebrew because the hifil form of it, which is the causative form of the verb, ties right into Exodus 24. If you go to Exodus 24, when the Israelites made the covenant and they promised they would love God, Moses takes the blood of the covenant and he sprinkles it on them. And think, imagine this, if someone's sprinkling blood on you, that would cause you to wonder and it would also startle you. And that verb can mean all of those things. And if you think about your first experience in the temple, you probably were a little bit full of wonder and a little bit startled. And in Exodus 24, that's what's going on. Like Moses is doing this as they're making a covenant. So I really like that. I want to just wanted to geek out a little bit on verse 15 and give props to Joseph Smith, but also props to the Jewish writers that are kind of taking that word and saying, whatever's happening, this person in verse 14, whose visage was marred more than any other man is going to amaze us. Now, another way to look at it, and I, and I feel the spirit when I talk about this, when you see the Savior you are going to be amazed. You're going to be like, this is amazing. So I know verse 15 of Isaiah 52 is a little clunky, but it really is cool. And it's this idea that God's going to come. Now that's section 133, that he's coming and then he's inviting us to rise from the dust. Now, Jeff Lindsay has written a ton on this, and we put some of this in the show notes. When the internet first started, Jeff Lindsay was a great member of the church that posted so many positive things and If anybody knows Jeff Lindsay, just tell him how much he's influenced my life. But in one of his articles, he writes about this idea that rising from the dust is such a cool symbol. It's a symbol of enthronement. Think about it. Adam and Eve are from the dust, but when they arise from the dust, 
It's an invitation to make and keep covenants and to enter into kingship. And what I mean by kingship is like heavenly kingship. And he spends a lot of time citing this guy by the name of Bruggeman, which he talks about this idea that to rise from the dust is to be taken up and elevated from obscurity and enter into royal office. And then finally, to return to God's presence. And so he cites a lot of this, and I just think it's beautiful. And I see it in the Book of Mormon all over the place where Lehi tells his sons, especially the ones that are being knuckleheads, to arise from the dust. And it's this idea of coming into God's presence. So with that in mind, go to Moroni chapter 10. This is Moroni's appendix. And Moroni knows Isaiah, starting in verse 27. And I see these verses as another version of section 133. Verse 27, I exhort you to remember these things, for the time speedily cometh that you will know that I lie not, and you shall see me at the bar of God. And the Lord God will say to you, did I not declare my words unto you, which were written by this man, like as one crying from the dead, even as one speaking out of the dust? So the Book of Mormon is speaking from the dust, asking us to arise from the dust. In fact, he's going to say that, I think, in verse 31, isn't he? And Lehi, way back at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, will say it to Laman and Lemuel in 2 Nephi chapter 1, arise from the dust and be men. Yeah, it's so good. Look at verse 28. I declare these things unto the fulfilling of the prophecies, and behold, they shall proceed forth out of the mouth of the everlasting God. Think about that, and think about ritually in the temple. If God is speaking... We are listening, and his words shall hiss forth. The word whisper is a synonym for hiss. So one way to read that is, his words shall whisper forth. And whisper, the connotation seems to be that what is spoken is a mystery. Think of 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, where Nephi says, I've been initiated into the mysteries. I just want to put that into your mind as a possible way to read this text. His word shall whisper forth from generation to generation. Verse 29, and God will show unto you that which I have written is true, and I would exhort you that you would come into Christ. Now think of the temple. We want to ritually come into his presence and lay a hold upon every good gift and touch not the evil gift. I love Moroni 10 verse 30, and I love how LeGrand Baker has contextualized this. So I'm just going to read it with his commentary. And again, I would exhort you that you would come into Christ in the temple drama and lay hold upon every good gift. One does that with one's hand and touch not the evil gift nor the unclean thing. There will always be counterfeits and they must be left alone. Verse 31, awake and arise, O Jerusalem, and put on thy beautiful garments O daughter of Zion, and strengthen thy stakes and enlarge thy borders forever, that thou mayest no more be confounded, that the covenants of the eternal Father which he has made unto thee, O house of Israel, may be fulfilled. To me, section 133 is this. It's a another way to read it is through the lens of the temple, so that we could, verse 32 of Moroni 10, be perfected in Christ, to be completed, to become holy without spot. And all of this ritually is temple literature. And it's beautiful. And Isaiah is doing it. And Moroni is doing it. And it's happening in section 133. And it's all throughout the Old Testament. Come out of Egypt 
and go to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Come out of Babylon and go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It's a very common Old Testament theme. And here we are as Latter-day Saints coming out of the apostasy. We are coming out of the apostasy, and the command is, go build the temple, build the covenants of the temple, and invite everyone into that house. So, one major theme of our identity in the latter days is we are to come out of the world, come out of Babylon, come out of Egypt, and build Zion. And you're going to find that all throughout section 133. Now, it uses the phrase in verse 14, spiritual Babylon. I wonder if in 2021 we might render that a little bit differently and say that we need to get out of digital Babylon. I like that, Bryce. A lot of us find ourselves and we find our children trapped in digital Babylon. And we have to do the same thing. We have to come out of digital Babylon. Don't touch the unclean things. Get out of digital Babylon and come out into Zion. And the focus here is build the temple. So that's kind of our first major theme. It flows all throughout the Old Testament, and we as Latter-day Saints need to fulfill that. Come out of Babylon and come into the holy place and build Zion. So there's a couple other Old Testament images that come up in section 133. I'd like to go to 23 and 24. Because I take this literally. Now, Mike's going to talk about it symbolically, and it's great to have both perspectives, but I take this literally. If you go back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, in the days of Peleg, the land was divided. And I like the symbolism of that literal interpretation because in the Garden of Eden, While we were in a terrestrial state, there was one land, one continent. And then soon after the fall, in the days of Peleg in Genesis, the land was divided. Now, incidentally, in the very next chapter of Genesis, the language got divided. So the symbolism to me is we now live in this divided world. We have divided peoples. When the land was divided, it wasn't divided evenly. When the language was divided, it wasn't divided evenly. And we have to deal with this inequality. We have to deal with this land of division. But if I want to get into the millennium, now I interpret verse 23, 24 literally that during the millennium, there will be one continent, one land. So the symbolism is this earth began as one continent when it was a terrestrial world in the Garden of Eden. It will end as one continent when it is a terrestrial world in the millennium. And if I want to get out of the telestial version of this world and into the terrestrial millennium, I have to become one. So it's the oneness with God, it's oneness with man that is symbolized by the land coming together. So the Lord says in verse 23, he shall command the great deep and it shall be driven back into the north countries and the island shall become one land. And the land of Jerusalem and the land of Zion shall be turned back into their own place And the earth shall be like as it was in the days before it was divided. I think that's a very weighted statement to say we're going back to a terrestrial planet. 
So will you let go of the division of this telestial world? We are so divided today. And can you become one? Like the symbolism of the land, can we as people become one with each other? And can we become one with God so that we can bring back that terrestrial world and dwell in the millennial state? So I like that reference to the early part of the earth that we're going to go back to oneness. Now, Mike sees this as a symbolic one land and oneness, and that's a great perspective to hear. I like both because you really brought up both. You're like, hey, this is literal, but this is also bring back the oneness. I certainly don't know, and I'm okay with whatever happens, but I do see this to be something that we could interpret figuratively as well. So what if the idea of Deuteronomy 6.4, where it talks about God as one, I think sometimes we as Latter-day Saints emphasize the separateness of God, but really they're more one than they are separate. I mean, we emphasize the separateness because of the creeds. Right, But it's natural. I get a lot of questions in classes saying, who is this? Is this the Father or the Son? Right. And it's like we want to tear them apart. And they're constantly saying, don't tear us apart. We're one. Yeah. We'll talk more about this when we get to Old Testament. But I see Heavenly Mother in this group. She is a goddess. And with her and the Father, so much was created. And so I see this to mean the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and Heavenly Mother are one in purpose, desire, heart, and spirit. They're gods, and they work together to bring to pass our immortality and our eternal lives. I mean, the son did his part. He bled on the tree, and he was resurrected, and he'll take us home. But the Holy Ghost is also crucial in the sense that he is the testator that teaches truth and lights our souls and brings us home and gives us manna from heaven. And both Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, our eternal parents, they love me. They want me to come home. And I see images of these in the temple of a mother asking her daughters to come home, giving them promises, and a father giving his sons promises, and then collectively we are brought back into his presence. And so what if this oneness of the land, like Bryce said, is a metaphor for the family, the grand family of Adam and Eve, or Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother? It's beautiful. And I think included in this are so many other things in these passages, like the pushing back of the great deep and standing on Mount Zion. I mean, that's verse 20 and verse 18. Those verses are so important and they're so integral to these ideas of being brought back in. Now, I'm okay with either way to interpret that verse on oneness. In fact, in the show notes, we included a great comment by Bruce McConkie who also took it literal. And I don't know. I see both and they're beautiful. And I think we need to go a little bit further, and that is we need to bring the house of Israel back to one. That as Israel got divided among all the nations, That's a good point. we've got to bring Israel back to one. And so the next few verses, 25 through 29, describe what needs to happen. I think there's kind of using both metaphors. As we bring the land back together, the ice is going to melt and the barren places are going to be changed. The climate of the land is going to change. And so there's an image here to the north and the ice flowing down and the deep being lifted up. But I think the symbolism is there's a lot of barriers that have to be broken in order to restore Israel. 
as we go out and bring all the tribes back into one house of Israel, it's going to take a great deal of effort and a lot of miracles. And I love the description here about highways will be pulled up and and openings will be made. The way will appear so that we can gather Israel. And I want to shout from the rooftops that when President Nelson became the president of the church in his very first general conference, April of 2018, he said in that great talk, Revelation for the Church and Revelation for Our Lives, he declared, now this is, I believe, a prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. The president of the church said, quote, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will perform some of his mightiest works between now and when he comes again. We will see miraculous indications that God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, preside over this church in majesty and glory. And that's what you're going to read this week as you describe the miracles that need to occur to unify the land and to unify the house of Israel, and to unify hearts within the home, and unify us to God. Bring children back and unify them to God. The miracles that God is going to pour out in the latter days will surpass the miracles of the previous dispensations. Hence, Jeremiah says, the day will come when we will no longer boast about the God that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. When we really want to boast about how powerful God is, we will talk about the God of the restoration, the God of bringing Israel back home. So there's another major image tied to the Old Testament, and that is going back to Genesis about the land being unified. Genesis 10, the land gets divided. Genesis 11, the language gets divided. We've now seen in section 133 that the land will be unified. You may be interested in turning to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. Look at the chapter heading. You'll know that this is a second coming prophecy, and he declares, quote, I will turn to the people a pure language, which might very well suggest that in the Garden of Eden, we had one land, one language. Now we live in this divided world where we have divided land and divided languages, but in the millennium, there will once again be a unified land and a unified language as a metaphor for the people that will dwell there. They will be a unified people. They have become one with God and one with each other. So, great Old Testament images. So, Mike, what are some of the other Old Testament images in 133 that everyone's going to read about this week? So, I think if you look at section 133, verses 18 through 34, there's a lot of things happening in the Old Testament that are brought to pass here in these verses. So, for example, you have verse 18, you have people that are with the Lamb and they're standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion ritually was where the temple was. And they're standing on this mountain. And then in verse 20, we read that he, meaning Jehovah, will stand on the Mount of Olives and upon the mighty ocean, even the great deep. That has reference to Zechariah. Zechariah in the 14th chapter talks about how the Savior or the Messiah figure will come and stand on the Mount of Olives. 
it reads as follows. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And so there is this conflict. And you go to verse 4, and it says, His feet, meaning the Lord's feet, if you look in verse 3, His feet, the Lord's feet, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it towards the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains." Skipping down to verse 8, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half towards the former sea and half towards the hinder sea, and summer and winter shall it be. And the Lord, verse 9, shall be king over the whole earth. This is another part of the temple drama that everything is going to be fixed and that the Lord is going to come and stand upon the earth. Now, I think there's another thing happening in verse 20, and it's this idea that the great deep is being pushed back. He's standing upon the mighty ocean, even the great deep. Now, the word ocean in the Old Testament, or the word sea, is yam. We're going to come back to that. Skip down to verse 23. He'll command the great deep, and it shall be driven back. And then it says, into the north countries. And then if you go to verse 26, those who are in the north countries shall come in remembrance before the Lord. So there's something going on with the North countries. There's something going on with the great deep. And then we have verse 22, how he has the voice of many waters, even the voice of great thunder. So from an Old Testament perspective, there's a lot happening here. But to transition to that point, I think what we've got to do is use John as a bridge. So in the book of Revelation chapter 12, he talks about a mighty war between the Lord or the Lamb and the dragon. And the dragon is a really old image. The dragon comes from the time of the Old Testament. And the idea was that God, through this theomachy, or what they call chaoskampf, that's a German word, and it just means to bring order out of chaos, that there was a mighty battle and this dragon gets put down. And so it's kind of foreign to us in our language. I mean, unless, of course, you like Lord of the Rings, because we have the dragon being slain by the person who is in the lineage of kings, right? So Tolkien gets this stuff. Well, the word yam, which is translated as sea, or the waters, the sea, is a chaos monster and sometimes typified as a dragon. And the word deep, if you look in verse 20, he's going to command the great deep. That word deep in the biblical language is Tihom, which is a cognate of the word Tiamat. And so big picture, because there's a lot of things happening in Mesopotamian religion, there was this idea that they had a God who was like the son of a God and his name was Marduk. And he's going to do some of the things Jesus does, but Marduk is going to conquer a dragon Tiamat and there's going to be order. Amongst the Israelites, they lived around people that talked about a God who was also a son of a God and his name was Baal, and he was the son of El, and he came down and conquered death and hell, and he conquered this mighty sea monster dragon, Yam, and then he was given a throne and a house made out of the cedars of Lebanon on the top of a mount called Mount Zaphon. Now, the word for north in the Bible is Zaphon. So there's all these connections. And so the image of this rival religion of the Israelites, they have a God that conquers the great deep, that conquers the sea, and builds his temple on the top of Mount Zaphon. And so what do the Israelites do? They have the image 
It's in the Psalms. Read Psalm 74. They, and it's a bunch of Psalms, not just Psalm 74. But they have an image of Jehovah that's conquering the dragon. And he's having his house built out of the cedars of Lebanon on the top of Mount Zion. So hopefully you're starting to see some of these things. We give you a ton more in the show notes because this could get really nerdy. And I love geeking out. Like I love doing this, but some of you are like, okay, Mike, stop talking. But my point is it's so cool because to the ancient Israelites, the North kind of represented like the borders of where false religion lie. And so Zaphon, a lot of times the idea for North was denigrated. It was kind of a negative thing. And so what's happening? They get scattered to the North. Assyria takes the Israelites North. So what's happening in verse 26? They're coming out of the North. Why? Because the Lord is fixing things. He's restoring the gospel and his people are coming out of the North. And verse 26 says, they'll no longer stay themselves. And what does it mean when the ice shall flow down at their presence? I have no idea, but look at verse one through four. In Isaiah 64, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down. What are the Israelites praying for? They want him to come back, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries. We're back to this idea of making God's name known. Think about the temple. When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he has prepared for him that waiteth for him. I think one of the things we see here is this invitation to meet God. And he's going to come down. And I mean, if you look at the end of 64, our holy and our beautiful house where our fathers praise thee. They're talking about the glory of it. But the context of Isaiah 64 is Isaiah sees the tragedy in verse 11. It's burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. So that's a very tragic ending to Isaiah 64. But Isaiah saw your day and he saw that it would be put back, which is really awesome. You see all these connections to the Old Testament. So the Lord is just kind of wrapping up all these prophecies of the Old Testament, saying this is what we're going to do in the latter days. He's mentioned Isaiah. He's referenced Zechariah. Now, as soon as you bring in Zechariah, as soon as you say in verse 18 of section 133 that the Lamb shall stand upon Mount Zion— there's another image that he seems to be pulling forward. If you go back one chapter in Zechariah to chapter 13, there will be those that when they meet the Savior on Mount Zion will say to him, what are these wounds in thy hands and in thy feet? And he will respond, these are the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And I think the invitation here is, know him before he comes. Don't be a stranger to Christ. Don't have him say to you, I came and you rejected me. When he stands on Mount Zion, will you be one of those that says, what are these wounds? I don't know what you did. I don't know who you are. Or will you be one of those that will bow the knee and welcome him back? Bryce, I think what you're talking about is really verse 32 of section 133. They know him, so when they see him, they fall down 
they fall down before him. And I love that verse in verse 32, where it says, they'll be crowned with glory. The Lord is not hoarding power. He wants to give glory to his children. And I love the image from the book of Revelation that when we are crowned with glory, we take that crown and give it to him as an acknowledgement of where it came from, that everything I accomplish is because of thee, Lord. I know it, and I appreciate all that I've received. There's so many more Old Testament images. Let's just do one more, and then we're going to move into the New Testament images that are going to find fulfillment in our day. So let's just do one more Old Testament. We could spend so much time, but let's just do one more. I think verse 52 is a really powerful image. These ideas are in the Hebrew Bible. So verse 52 of section 133 reads as follows, And now the year of my redeemed has come, and they will mention the loving kindness of their Lord and all that he has bestowed upon them according to his goodness and according to his loving kindness forever and ever. Loving kindness or chesed is a word that oftentimes in the Old Testament is translated as loving kindness, but there's really not an English equivalent. That is just this undying, passionate love, but it's not passionate love in the sense of a married couple, but it's this deep love that's just devotion without end. And that's who the Savior is. And if you look, other ways of describing Hesed are in verse 53. Notice the words that are used. It talks about his pity, and it talks about him carrying us and bearing us. And then verse 53, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And in Hosea, it talks about this, but it's all over the place where the Lord says, what I want from you guys, Israel, isn't so much your stuff. I want your covenant love. I want this chesed from you. And I want to be tied to you in this great feeling of love. And so there are times when individuals demonstrate this in the Old Testament, even to the point of risking their lives because they love the person that they're doing this for. And one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament that shows this and demonstrates this is the story of Ruth. So I can't wait to get into Ruth and how Ruth is a type of Christ, but just know that word loving kindness to me is an Old Testament word and God is showing us who he is. It's really beautiful stuff. I love that phrase, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. He allows us to go through the liberty jails of our lives, but he's there with us suffering together. Yes. He doesn't deny us of the experience that we need to be for our good and to give us experience, but he is afflicted with us. It just screams of Isaiah 53 and so many Old Testament images. He was rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with our griefs. Surely he hath borne our sorrows, and with his stripes we are healed. There's so many ties to Old Testament prophecies that are going to come to pass in the latter days. Now, Let's go back through and point out some of the New Testament prophecies. What are some of the New Testament prophecies that are going to find fulfillment in our day? And I really like verses 10 and 11. He points to the bridegroom, and he very clearly says, Awake and arise and go forth to meet the bridegroom. Behold and lo, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Prepare yourselves for the great day of the Lord. So he's going back to the parable of the ten virgins, 
And he's saying, are you one of those wise virgins that are prepared to meet him? Now, luckily, he's already addressed that in the Doctrine and Covenants. He mentions that the fulfillment of that prophecy, what the wise virgins had, So I'm in section 45, verses 56 and 57. So this is now the second time in the Doctrine and Covenants that the Lord says the parable of the ten virgins will be fulfilled in our day. But he clarifies it in verse 57, For they that are wise and have received the truth have taken the Holy Ghost for their guide and have not been deceived. So by referring to that in the appendix of the Doctrine and Covenants, he's constantly reminding us, have you taken the Holy Ghost as your guide? That's the oil that's in the vessel. I can't give it to you. You can't go buy it in the market. Each one of us has to fill that vessel ourselves. And it is filled a drop at a time each time I learn to take the Holy Ghost as my guide. So watch, therefore. I'm back in section 133, verse 11. Watch, therefore, be prepared, because you don't know when he's coming. Then, back in 133, on two occasions in this section, he refers to Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Way back in the New Testament, John prophesied that an angel would fly through heaven with the everlasting gospel. Now, we love to put Moroni on top of our temple, but if you look at that, if you don't know who it is, it's clearly a reference to Revelation 14, 7. There is an angel holding a book on top of our temples, most of our temples. And the reference here is, now I'm in section 133, verse 17, for behold, the Lord thy God sent forth the angel crying through the midst of heaven, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Then we're going to see another reference to that in verse 36. Now verily I saith the Lord that these things might be known among you, O inhabitants of the earth. I have sent forth mine angel flying through the mists of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. So again, he just tied the book of Revelation into the restoration. That all that we read in the book of Revelation will be fulfilled in our day, including an angel or really angels are going to come bringing the everlasting gospel, which will then, in section 133, verse 37, be preached into all the nations. So we receive it from angels, and then we go out and preach it into all the world. Now, speaking of Revelation, the book of Revelation, which really isn't called the book of Revelation, it's really called the Revelation of St. John the Divine. Since we're talking about the real name, the Greek word is apocalypse. Apocalypse means to remove the cover. So what do we do in the temple? We come into God's presence. We remove the veil. So I think it's temple too. Yeah. But in verse 18, section 133, verse 18, the lamb shall stand upon Mount Zion. There's the Old Testament reference. And with him, 144,000. There's the New Testament reference. Now, we are taught in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants who the 144,000 are. They are high priests, so they are church leaders, and they seem to represent all the tribes of Israel. They are high priests that have come in from all the tribes of Israel, having the authority of the priesthood. And I think the key here is what's written on their forehead. I think that's a very clear reference to Revelation and the 
counterfeit, which is the beast who who's put his image in our forehead. Like touch not the unclean thing. Touch We're not back the to unclean that, right? thing. Back in section one thirty three, verse eighteen, the hundred and forty four thousand have the Father's name written on their forehead. All of these images are just tying together. When the Passover occurred, they put the lamb on the forehead of their house, so to speak. By putting the lamb on the forehead of their house, the destroying angel passed over them. And here we have that image, the 144,000 put the Father's name on them, and they were spared. They were blessed, and they are with Christ on Mount Zion. And so we have that imagery of marking yourself with God. In the Book of Mormon, Alma will say it simply, have you received his image in your countenance? So there's another wonderful reference that in the latter days, we have to mark ourselves as gods. And that is happening in the temple. We go into the temple, we have his name put upon us, and we become his people. And we take some of the temple with us to remind us. It's beautiful. So if you go to the 133rd section, verse 46, the question is raised, who is this that cometh down from God in heaven with dyed garments from the regions which are not known, clothed in his glorious apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? And he shall say, I am he who spake in righteousness, mighty to save, and the Lord shall be red in his apparel and his garments like him that treadeth in the wine vat. And so there are some images here, Bryce. And so I love the footnote, Revelation nineteen thirteen. So if you go to Revelation 19, it talks about the marriage supper of the lamb. Verse seven and eight, the wife has made herself ready. That's the church. She's clothed in fine linen, which is a symbol for the righteousness of the saints. And verse 9, there's a supper. This is all happening in the ancient Israelite temple. They have the supper. We do this portion of the temple experience in the church. We have the supper symbolically. When we take the sacrament, we take his name upon us. But then we get to verse 11, and it's this image of war. And this God that's coming down in Revelation 19 is not going to come like a lamb. He's going to come, verse 13, clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's the Savior. And the armies which were with him are clothed in fine linen in verse 14. And then an interesting passage, verse 16 says, on his vesture and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Perhaps that is written on a sword, which is on his thigh. That's one, that's one possibility to read it. But this image in Revelation 19 is this image of a warrior God because he's done waiting for the wicked to repent. I think that's one way to read Revelation 19 in the context of section 133. Now, the connection between the bride's garment and his garment is significant. The bride puts on fine linens, which represents her righteousness. So the bride puts on fine linen, clean and white. He wears red. We wear white. The reason he wears red is he took the spots on my clothing and put them on himself. So red here is a symbol of sin. And so back to Isaiah, notice the connection. Though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Notice the imagery here. He takes my sin and puts it on himself. That's why Jesus will come wearing red, because he took my red, my crimson, my scarlet, and he wears it himself and leaves me clean and white. It's a beautiful atonement. It's a beautiful imagery. In fact, that even ties in like Gat Shaman or the word for Gethsemane, right? The oil press. In this, we're talking about the wine press in verse 50 of section 133. His voice shall be heard. I have trodden the wine press alone. And then none were with me. You know, it's pretty amazing to think that the Savior did what he did and he had to do it alone. The Savior is all that the scriptures say that he is. Yeah. And as he trod that wine, can you imagine stomping on grapes? You'd get your garments stained and soiled. And so as he went through that wine press of Gethsemane is where his garments now literally were red. He sweat from every pore. I assume he walked into Gethsemane wearing a white tunic. But when he came out of Gethsemane, what color would he have been wearing? And that's so symbolic of what he did in Gethsemane. I came out of Gethsemane wearing white. I went in wearing red and came out wearing white. Jesus went in wearing white and came out wearing red. And that's just tied together beautifully in that imagery of Jesus coming on a white horse wearing red clothing. I also think it's a great image of him as a warrior because he's going out conquering. Now, sometimes that image can be difficult for people, the idea of a warrior God that's conquering. And so for those of you that are struggling with that, another interpretation that I like to go with is the idea that he is conquering death. He's clearly conquering sin, but he's also conquering death as a warrior. And so in verse 56 of section 133, we read, the graves of the saints shall be opened and they, the saints, will stand forth and stand on the right hand of the Lamb, of the Savior, when he shall stand upon Mount Zion and upon the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and they shall sing the song of the Lamb day and night forever and ever. And so I think one of these concluding images is this image of the Savior as a warrior God who has conquered death and the saints are with him in this victorious place. And the context is the temple. And if you read the end of what Moroni writes, Moroni 10, 31 to the end of the chapter, where he says, arise from the dust, O Jerusalem, and put on thy garments. Verse 32, be perfected in him and deny yourselves of ungodliness that you may be perfect. And in verse 33, he says, if by the grace of God, you are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are you sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ. Think of what he's wearing which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of sins, that you become holy without spot. And then he says in verse 34, I'll, I'll see you soon, and we're going to reunite. So I think that image of Moroni 10 falls right in line with Isaiah and falls right in line with Doctrine and Covenants 33. So for me, Bryce, this is a perfect appendix to these revelations of the restoration where we're invited to come back into his presence. And think about that. Moroni writes that in the very end and then hands the plates off to the Latter-day Saints. His last chapter and then hands the plates to us in the Latter-days to fulfill the prophecies. 
So as you read section 133 this week, you will tie in every hope and every prayer of every Old Testament and New Testament prophet that the Latter-day Saints rise up from the dust and do the work they've all prophesied that we would do. May we be the people they prophesied we would be and understand that we have been reserved to come to earth at this time. We are not the Church of Jesus Christ of the Millennial Day Saints. We are not the Church of Jesus Christ of the pre-apostasy days. We are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We have been sent to earth to prepare the world for the Lord's coming. Catch that vision. Catch the vision of who we are. I would like to end with an observation from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. He said the following, I have a theory about those earlier dispensations and the leaders, families, and people who lived then. I have often thought about them and the destructive circumstances that confronted them. They faced terribly difficult times and for the most part did not succeed in their dispensations. Apostasy and darkness eventually came to every earlier age in human history. Indeed, the whole point of the restoration of the gospel in these latter days is that it had not been able to survive in earlier times and therefore had to be pursued in one last triumphant age. We know the challenges Abraham's posterity faced and still do. We know the Moses' problems, and with an Israelite people who left Egypt but couldn't quite get Egypt to leave them. Isaiah was the prophet who saw the loss of the ten Israelite tribes to the north. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel were all prophets of captivity. Peter, James, and John, and Paul, the great figures of the New Testament, all saw apostasy creeping into their world almost before the Savior had departed, and certainly while they themselves were still living. Think of the prophets of the Book of Mormon living in a dispensation ending in such painful communication between Mormon and Moroni about the plight they faced and the nations they loved dissolving into corruption, terror, and chaos. In short, apostasy and destruction of one kind or another was the ultimate fate of every general dispensation we ever had down through time. But here's my theory. My theory is that those great men and women, the leaders of those past ages, were able to keep going and to keep testifying, to keep trying to do their best, not because they know that they would succeed, but because they knew that you would. I believe they took courage and hope not so much from their own circumstances as from yours. One way or another, I think virtually all the prophets and earlier apostles had their visionary moments of our time, a view that gave them courage of their own less successful eras. Those early brethren knew an amazing amount about us. Prophets such as Moses, Nephi, and the brother of Jared saw the latter days in tremendously detailed vision. Some of what they saw wasn't pleasing, but surely all those earlier generations took heart that there would finally be one dispensation that would not fail. Ours, not theirs, was the day that gave them heavenly and joyful anticipations and caused them to sing and prophesy a victory. Ours is the day, collectively speaking, towards which the prophets have been looking from the beginning of time. 
in a very real way, their chance to consider themselves fully successful depends upon our faithfulness and our victory. May you catch the vision this week of all these Old and New Testament prophets, seers, and revelators who saw failure in their day, but hope in ours. May we be the church that they envisioned we would be and do what they envisioned we would do. And with that, we'll see you next week when we cover section 135 and 136, The Martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.